Welcome to POP, the sermon podcast for Peace Lutheran Church in Gehenna, with Pastors Doug Warburton and Tony Katko. Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. So before uh, we get into the sermon, there's something I feel compelled to speak about. So everyone knows, if you've been here for the past few weeks, that Pastor Doug loves to point out how he knows more than me about sports. (laughs) And both of our brackets are finished, and here are the results. 67, Tony Katko, 262 (laughs) is the standing for Doug Warburton's brackets. Thank you. It's all about Haiti and my pettiness. So there we go. (laughs) So during seminary, if you want to become a pastor, you have to meet a few different times with this group called the Candidacy Committee. And it's this big, intimidating, scary committee, um, but they exist for a good purpose to determine if these pastoral candidates are fit, if they might be ready and able to become a pastor. And even though those interviews were nerve-wracking for me, they all went fine. There weren't any big issues. But there was this one moment in one of those interviews that I'll never forget. My academic advisor made this comment. He said that, you know, Tony, he's pretty well-liked, and he's pretty capable, and he's going to do fine. But here's the thing. So far in life, I haven't seen Tony have any major failures, which means that as a pastor, he's going to face these two challenges. First of all, because of the nature of being a pastor and the nature of all the people you work with in the church, he is bound to fail at times, and he is bound to experience what it feels like when not everyone likes him. Both of those are true, let me tell you. But then here's the other challenge, he said. When someone like Tony has a pretty good life and things go well for them, it can make it harder for them to experience the need for true grace. And I've thought about that a lot since. There's a difference between believing in grace, like, yeah, that's a good thing, and experiencing grace as a reality for yourself. That feeling in life where you know everything would fall apart except for that grace that you need, which gives you new life. So just like last week, our parable this week is a parable of grace. And at first, it seems pretty straightforward. And we all like a good redemption story. And we all know that it's good to be humble. It's good to seek forgiveness. We all like a little bit of grace. But the real scandal of this parable is if you start to see it as a story that shows God's true, unconditional grace. Now, I wasn't here last week, um, but I got to hear Pastor Doug's sermon because we have a sermon podcast 
And I'm going to stop here and make a shameless plug for our sermon podcast. If you didn't know, we have one. You can scan it right now and listen to it and share our sermons. There you go, back to our regularly scheduled programming. So anyway, I listened to Doug's sermon last week, and it was about the prodigal son. If you were here, you know that story isn't really about what the son does. It's about the grace of the father. But then if you go and look at the rest of that chapter, the whole chapter is full of these stories of what's lost and found. And so first, Jesus says, imagine that God is like a shepherd, and this shepherd has a hundred sheep, but then one of the sheep gets lost. Well, if that's God, that shepherd will go off and find the one sheep and carry that sheep back home and rejoice. That's what God is like. And then Jesus says, or imagine that God is a woman who has 10 silver coins. Well, God loses one of those coins. Well, then that woman is going to tear apart the whole house, not stopping until she finds that one lost coin and then rejoice when she's found it. That's what God is like. Now, in those parables, what does the sheep have to do? Nothing. Actually, what can the sheep do? You know, sheep, they're actually pretty dumb. And so if a sheep is really lost, if it's wandered far enough away, there's nothing it can do to find its way back. The only way it's getting back home is if the shepherd goes and takes it back. And I love what Jesus says in that story. It's not like Jesus kind of coaxes the sheep. Come on, let's go. No, the shepherd picks up the sheep and carries it all the way on his shoulders. Like it's all about what the shepherd does, not about what the sheep. What about the coin? What does the coin have to do to get back? There's nothing the coin can do. It's all about this woman finding the coin. You see, in all of these stories, the prodigal son too, the only way that these lost things are getting back, it's only because of the grace of the shepherd and then the woman and then the father. Now, I know this is the same idea that Doug talked about last week, but I think this is so important. And it's worth saying over and over again because I hear people push back against this all the time. Yes, grace is good, but there's got to be some conditions. But guess what? If God's grace is unconditional, that really means there are no conditions at all. I love the way that Dave Daubert puts this. He's a Lutheran pastor, and he wrote this book called Lutheran Trump Cards, where he talks about the key parts, as he sees it, of our Lutheran faith. And here's his ace. Here's what he says is most important. There is no way to God, period. Not there is no way to God except through Jesus. No, there is no way for you to get to God. God comes to you. And yes, God saves us through Jesus. God takes what is lost and what is hopeless and what is dead, and God brings it back to life. End of story. So with that in mind, let's look at our parable for today. It starts like this. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Let's pause here for a minute because it's important to think about what the crowd would have thought at this point, naming a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now, if you have spent much time in the church, if you are familiar with the Gospels, you probably know that Pharisees get a pretty bad rap. They're pretty much seen as the bad guys. And so whenever you hear Pharisee, most of our minds, they go, okay, this is going to be one of those self-righteous religious hypocrites. But that is not what the crowd would have assumed at all. 
Jesus often points out the hypocrisy of religious leaders because it's not what people would have expected. They would have expected that for the most part, Pharisees are going to be good people. Just like you would assume until you get to know us that pastors would be pretty good people. Social workers, people who work in nonprofits, they're not all perfect, but you assume good intentions for them. So the crowd would have assumed good intentions for this Pharisee, so I think we should too. So yeah, from what he says, he's kind of a self-righteous guy, but let's also assume he's a good person. He probably tries to live out his faith as it was taught to him, including all of the laws to love your neighbor, to take care of the poor, to be a good steward of your financial resources. And so here's what he prays. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my income. Now, yeah, that sounds conceited to us, but notice what he does first. The Pharisee gives credit to God. It's not because of me. Thank you, God, for this. So imagine he said the same thing, but with a little different language. What if he said, but by the grace of God, I wouldn't be where I am today. But by the grace of God, I could have been a thief or a murderer or an adulterer or a tax collector. That's what he's saying. There are so many ways, Lord, that I could have taken my life and it could have gone down a wrong path, but you have led me to the right one so I can serve your purpose. Thank you, God, for that. That doesn't sound as bad, does it? In other words, he thinks he is right with God because God has helped him to live a good enough life. There's the underlying assumption. God helped me, but you still have to live a good enough life. There's a trap to this parable if we take it too simple. All right, be humble. I can do that. Check. Don't look down on others. I can do that. Check. And if you've done those things, then we can say this prayer together. Thank you, God then I am not like those other people, the religious, self-righteous hypocrites. Except if we say that, then we are just like them. It's not that simple. So let's think about the tax collector. Now, not too many of us are fond of being audited by someone from the IRS, but still, we, I don't think we think of tax collectors today as being the scum of the earth. At least not most of us, I would hope. But in the day of Jesus, that's exactly what they thought of them. A tax collector, a Jewish tax collector in the Roman Empire, that was the worst kind of person. They were a traitor to their own people, and they worked in this predatory profession. There's a reason why Jesus is so often criticized for accepting and welcoming the tax collectors and sinners. Now, the gospel writers, they say it like that because... There are a lot of sinners, but tax collectors, they're so bad, they're put into their own special category. Last week, Pastor Doug mentioned uh, Pastor Robert Farrar Capon, who wrote this book, Parables of Grace. And uh, I'm going to quote his book, too, because I love, this is the way that he describes a tax collector in the time of Jesus. It would have been a mafia-style enforcer working for the Roman government on a nifty franchise that lets him collect from his fellow Jews, mind you, from the people whom the Romans might have trouble finding, but whose whereabouts he knows and whose language he speaks, he collects all the money he can bleed out of them, provided only he pays the authorities an agreed-upon flat fee. He has been living for years on the cream 
you skimmed off of their milk money. In other words, this guy is a thug. And he's a traitor to his own people. I mean, he's collaborating with the occupying empire. Imagine a Ukrainian person selling intelligence about their neighbors to the Russian authorities. That's what this would be like. And the tax collector is not only doing that, but he's getting wealthy in the process, making a good living off of his neighbor's struggles. So he comes to the temple and he says this prayer. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And then Jesus says, all right, this one is the one who went home justified. And that basically means right with God. This one is the one who went home right with God. Now, Kepan points out that in this parable, we might be okay with that message. It's challenging, but we can get there. We don't necessarily like that someone who's done some really bad things will get forgiven, but we can get behind second chances as long as it leads to some significant change. In other words, we're okay if God shows a little bit of mercy to that tax collector as long as we imagine in our mind that when he comes back the next week to pray that he's turned his life around. He's left his profession. He's now got an upstanding job. Or maybe this tax collector stayed a tax collector, but he stopped skimming off the top. He's not taking advantage of people. He's given all of his wealth to the poor. Except none of that is part of the story at all. Now, maybe he does it, and maybe not. So picture this instead. That tax collector comes back the next week to pray after changing nothing. He keeps fleecing off of his neighbors and enjoying a comfortable living off of taking advantage of them. And again, he says the same prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God still shows him mercy. I think we're a little less okay with that, aren't we? So let's put this into a little more modern context. We were watching the uh, Netflix show Narcos recently, and it's one of many adaptations talking about the life of Pablo Escobar. Now, Pablo Escobar was this notorious drug lord in Colombia. And at one point, Forbes magazine ranked him one of the 10 wealthiest people on the planet, this drug trafficker. And he kind of has this crazy, amazing, horrible story about his life. That's why so many uh, shows have picked up on his story. And a lot of people in Colombia, they loved Pablo Escobar because he spent millions of his dollars on the poor in Colombia. He built soccer fields, he built churches, he built entire neighborhoods to house the homeless poor. And then he got into politics and he was elected as an alternative candidate to Colombia's Congress. A lot of people liked him. But he was also ruthless, undeniably ruthless and violent. At one point, he had a bomb put on this plane and blew up this commercial plane, killing over 100 innocent people to try and get at someone. And then he started this war with the government, and he assassinated at least one presidential candidate. Some people say maybe more than that. He assassinated a minister for justice. And then on his orders, over 1,000 Colombian police officers were killed. I watched this interview with Escobar's son, Juan Pablo, and he says that no one really knows how many people his father had murdered, but he estimates it's at least 3,000 from this one guy. Now, Escobar's son is interesting because he has spoken out for years that he is an outspoken critic of what his father did. 
He said, we should not imitate this. This is not what we should be like. Look at all the harm this has done. He never defends what his father did. But he also says, I remember him as a dad too. He was a good family man. He spent a lot of time with his kids. He loved his kids and tried to raise them with love and raise them well. So Pablo Escobar has this really complicated legacy. But if you look at just the stuff that he's done, there's no denying this guy was a monster. So I want you to imagine this monster. Before he was killed in this shootout with police, imagine that he went to one of the churches that he built and he reflected on the terror in his life that he had caused. And what if he prayed that prayer that the tax collector did? God have mercy on me, a sinner. And God did, even if Escobar continued to live the rest of his life causing pain and destruction and death. I don't know about you, but that doesn't sit that well with me. That's a little too much grace, isn't it? Too much grace, not enough justice. You see, as much as we might like, not like to say it, we all, in the back of our head, we have this idea that there is some line that you can't cross. There is some level of good enough that you have to live in your life to be right with God, which in theological terms is called being justified by works, not by grace. That's what the Pharisee was counting on, a certain level of conditional grace. Now, whenever we start to think of this, there's always a follow-up question. All right, grace, yeah, but doesn't that mean that nothing matters? Doesn't that just mean it doesn't matter what we do with our life? God doesn't care one way or the other? Of course not. Of course not. Look at what Jesus did and taught. Love matters. Showing compassion and mercy and generosity and justice, all of that stuff makes a difference for you. It makes a difference for the world. But also, none of that stuff is what saves us. None of the good things that we do in life, none of that can earn our place at God's side. Jesus has already paid the tab. Stop trying to pay it yourself. There's no way to get justified. It's done already. Right after this parable, someone asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? After that little conversation, Jesus says, this line that troubles many of us from middle class and higher uh, states in the world. And, and he says, it's easier for a camel to enter the eye of a needle than for a rich person like this to enter the kingdom of God. And here's how I want to end. I love how the message translates what comes next. Then, who has any chance at all, the others asked. No chance at all, Jesus said if you think you can pull it off by yourself. Every chance in the world if you trust God to do it. There is no chance for you to do it at all if you think you're doing it on your own, but there is every chance if you trust God to do it. 